The Literature Corner. Well, obviously, over the last day or so, tributes have been flooding social media, the blogosphere as well. All of this following the death, uh, unexpectedly, of award-winning and absolutely brilliant African writer, uh, Binyavanga Wainaina. And many of us loved his contribution on the continent and around the globe, writing authentically, writing fully. And he was born in 1971. He died at the age of 48. He had suffered a stroke a while back. Some reports suggest that that might have been another stroke in the last day or two. That was his undoing. And what I wanted to do this half an hour is to dedicate today's literature corner to his memory, to his person, to his life's work as well. If you knew him personally, he obviously was as South African as he was Kenyan. Many of you would have encountered him. Many of you have read his essays over the years. Many of you might have been published by him. Um, many of you might have read his memoirs. Many of you would have been familiar with some of his activism as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think of when I say his name and which are your favorite parts of his irreducibly complex and larger-than-life personality. When I think about Binya, I think about... The ways in which I knew him, I first encountered his name in relation to his 2002 Kane short story that was the winning story in 2002, Discovering Home, and Pasalelo Kantai, who is also a Kenyan writer, journalist, and a friend of his that had uh, mentioned his name to me uh, through another friend of mine that introduced me to Pasa, who in turn introduced me uh, with his rants and raves about the brilliance of Binya to Binya's work. And that was all the way back in 2002. And of course, that is what propelled him onto the literary scene. And thereafter, he had just been amazing, absolutely amazing. He was brave. He was funny. He was quirky. He was unpredictable. But above all, he was not given to platitudes and insincerity. He lived fully and he also wrote fully and he spoke fully. And rightly so, many of you remember um, some of the highlights of his career, including lampooning the ways in which Africa gets lampooned in writing, living openly as a gay person after he famously on that absolutely brilliant platform, Africa as a Country, wrote an essay speaking his truth in terms of his queer identity and also eventually telling the world that he was living with HIV. So he has been enormously influential and quite the character. And I'd asked a couple of authors to also give me their memory of him. Um, and we've managed to get a couple of them to do so. The first one I want to play, Abel, is a um, fantastic uh, fellow writer, Zukiswa uh, Warner, who knew him extremely, extremely well. And... Um, my condolences to his family, his friends, and to those writers like Zikuswa in particular who knew him more intimately than the rest of us did as well. And when I'd asked Zikuswa to just send me a tribute to Abinya, this is what she had to say. Binyavanga was an incredibly generous human being. As a writer, he was a writer's writer. He had got into a space where he uh, pushed other people and uh, wanted the best for them. The very idea, uh, the highlight of his generosity, obviously, in addition to all the other things that he did that are known, the most visible one was the fact that he took his Kane Prize money, part of his winnings, and he started Kwani, 
and Kwani came into a space which destabilized the publishing industry in Kenya, which had been used to doing things in a certain way. Um, he was he was a really loving friend, so loving and so generous that every now and again he would take on people's battles, and sometimes that would make people uncomfortable. So, for instance, uh, when he took on uh, El Nathan. In um, you know, after El Nathan had said something about Chimamanda, now you were having two really big names uh, fighting against this guy whose debut novel hadn't even come out. And it's a battle that I thought Bean should have stayed out of. But it's also, I also understood it from a perspective of him being a friend. He was incredibly loyal mm-hmm. and he would stand by his friends, whatever happened and uh, however you'd look at it. He caught a lot of flack here in Kenya when he, um, when he, you know, wrote the piece on uh, I'm a homosexual mom and uh, suddenly he was being described as an activist and a, a gay rights activist. And the thing about it is, there's a there's a society a certain society a certain member certain members of society who believe in upholding you know whatever the government says upholding the law and uh, are uncomfortable pushing boundaries and uh, so when he came out with that piece at a time when the continent uh, Uganda and Nigeria were putting very stringent uh, homosexual uh, bills it's made people here uncomfortable and so because activism is considered a bad word anyway because there's the whole aura of being funded by the west gay rights activism is even considered worse and he you know i don't think he got a lot of flack in that there was a lot of attacks and i'm even seeing now on my timeline um people uh still saying very negative stuff uh, and thinking that is his only legacy and totally erasing his his writing. And, and I'm seeing this on my Facebook timeline. So, of course, I've had to delete a lot of people. But, yeah, he was he was um, but he, he took it. He took it on the chin, despite the fact that he didn't deserve to stand and take it on the chin. So, yes, um, I think it's going to be missed, not just in Kenya, but uh, continentally. But I know he'd also been very ill for a long time uh, and so even as i think well he's rested i'm also uh mourning the idea that we, we we're not going to have this person to to push discourse to make us uncomfortable to um to drag us kicking and fighting uh to think up new ideas so yes um i'm really gonna miss him he was not just uh, a writer I respected, but he was also very much my brother and uh, my friend. Absolutely. Beautiful tribute there from Zukuse Warner. Joining me now on the line is Nick Mshlongo. How's it, Nick? Uh, good morning, and how are you, Yusuf? Good. Long time, my friend. 
And uh, yeah, 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 difficult circumstances under which I'm chatting to you for the first time in a little while. You had known Binya as well, and since 2006, first time you met him yeah. was in Zanzibar. And after that, your paths had crossed all across the world, not just here on the continent, but also as far afield as Philadelphia. What are your thoughts on the passing of this absolutely fantastic African writer? I think uh, if um, we, as Africans, actually, not only Africans, I think the world have lost a very great literary giant. Mm. And the reason I'm saying that is that, uh, you know, he was one of the people, few people that I know who was committed very much into uh, building spaces for other writers, you know. Uh, I'll talk ab- about a writer like myself, for instance. Most of the places that I went to, uh, like for instance, in uh, uh, where I met him first at the Ziff, mm. was through his recommendation. And also, I had an opportunity as well to go to places like Nigeria, for instance, where uh, where I did my very first, uh, uh, you know. Um, facilitation of a writing workshop. Mm. And that was through him uh, because he was a friend of Chimamanda and then Chimamanda, uh, we met in Oslo, him, myself and Chimamanda and then they decided, no, look, let's come and then do this thing of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, spreading the uh, literature, you know, and also uh, sharing with others. So he was a very greatest friend of mine he was also a brother of mine, actually. Mm. Mm. And, and, and in most, some of the things that I know about him, uh, that, you know, I know him quite a lot, to such an extent that whenever he's here in South Africa, I know that we will be talking throughout, you know. Mm. And he was a person that was open to everybody. He was always surrounded by people. And then these are people that sometimes will come to seek advice, uh, uh, writing advices through him. But sometimes uh, these are people that I just hang on. He just loved everybody. <laughs> so I just loved him for that. And he was fearless. Uh, something that Zugisa has just alluded to not so long. Yeah, he was wonderfully about, uncomfortable, yes. right? Yeah. Some people, well, look, it's not, uh, he, he, he spoke and he lived his truth. But some people may have yeah. been very uncomfortable. You never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Actually, that, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Very, it was very fearless. And for instance, for him to, uh, and one thing that maybe people might not be, uh, he was, he loved South Africa quite a lot. Mm. That's why I even studied here. And uh, I remember uh, two years ago, I mean, one and a half year ago, when we, when he came here, it was not, uh, his speech was impaired of some sort, you know, because of the stroke that he had while he was in uh, Germany. So um, he, when he came here, he wanted to live in South Africa because of the way he felt like South Africa out of out, uh, out of the whole of the uh, of Africa. Actually, it's uh, mm. he loved our democracy right. and, and stuff. Yeah, so he wanted to. And I remember uh, going with him to places like uh, Yeovil, where he wanted to buy a house. Actually, so uh, that's how f- uh, very close we uh, we were. Actually, he would consult me in terms of all those things, mm. but. Uh, Besides all of that, I know him as a man with a lot of appetite. Uh, 
in a night absolutely <laughs> very good app- absolutely. appetite mm. that's why when <laughs> when he talks about when he talks about him himself having having tested 15000 uh, cuisine you know i'm not i'm not surprised <laughs> because everywhere you go with him it will be tasting new things i remember when we were walking uh, the other day we were walking in at Villagazo street and then uh, he just saw maguinha you know and he said i want to try this and then and quarter so he would try it on the street <laughs> you, would, you wouldn't think that he's the real intellectual uh, that is doing this actually when he was doing that you know so he was a very uh, i like his humility his kindness and more especially the fact that uh, it is i remember what another time when we were in Philadelphia, for instance, we were at uh, a Chebe symposium, and then uh, he, he never slept, actually. I, I don't remember him liking to sleep. Mm. So he will just, I, he came to my room one day knocking, let's just go, uh, what are we going? Anyway, we're just going to take us Philadelphia is known for brewing beers. Mm. So we'll just go around the place tasting beers, you know, the whole day. <laughs> you know, just talking. He left fully, so didn't time. he, Nick? He left fully. I mean, I know it's a, it's a, it's a platitude, but in his case, it is a simple and an honest description. The man lived fully. You can't, you can accuse him yeah. of many things. You can't accuse him of having had a life that was not examined. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And more especially that, uh, the fact that even people that he didn't know end up knowing him yeah. because he was always asking people things. You know, how I remember at some point I was very, uh, I'm talking about the Philadelphia thing. And then uh, we went to a place where it, it was very bitterly cold. And here's the man spending 30 minutes asking people how they brew their beer, you know, mm. and you're standing there and it's very cold. So I just loved him. To such an extent that in most cases, what it it it, lot, it taught me lots of things. That whenever you write, it's out of those experiments, That's you know, right. out of That's those right. lo- that love from the people that you get, and then it makes you uh, to be a strong person. Absolutely. So, uh, Just yeah, a final question, Nick. Um, absolutely. Obviously, one has the luxury of not needing to pick which is your favorite pieces of his writing. He has that moving piece of the missing part of his memoir coming out to his mom in that Africa is a country 2014 entry. That was amazing. His writing against the way in which Africa is often caricatured globally and doing so humorously, that's been influential for many, many people, including reporters who report on the continent and had to do a double take and examine whether they are guilty of some of the things that he was lampooning as well. Um, and that's quite apart from his own memoir. So there's a rich over there. Um, and yes. amongst all of those different things that he wrote about, is there any in particular that stand out for you? Uh, actually, for me, it's uh, how to write about Africa. Uh, actually, all of them. Actually, um, I, I am a, a, a homosexual mom. Is was very actually touching mm. and very. Uh, it was actually phenomenal. It was just like love. But for me uh, specifically, uh, it will be. Uh, how to write about Africa because everybody after that tried that's right she we no longer cared yes. actually uh, uh, what stands out about that piece is that it also uh, you know uh, uh, wrapped lots of people in a wrong way like for instance the cane price because many people uh, now decided uh, 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 you know uh, look critically into 
the prices that are around Africa, you know, that um, uh, why people are winning and all those kind of things. They, tried to, they started to interrogate all those kind of prices that uh, came about later uh-huh. on uh, because of it, actually. Mm-hmm. Be- yeah, it showed people that, no, look, you don't have to write in, uh, uh, for, for you to be a greatest writer. You don't have to be told what to write about. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Uh, write something mm-hmm. that is in your, within you because many people were now writing uh, things that Europe mm-hmm. uh, might mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. read, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I think that stands out for me, uh, how to write about Africa. Nick, thanks, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that, of course, is Nick Mishlonga himself, an excellent contemporary African writer. And um, he knew uh, Binya extremely well and some beautiful memories there also. 22 minutes after 11 o'clock. The Literature Corner. Well, why don't we listen to the writer himself speaking in his own words? And as Nick rightly said there, he the way in which he spoke about and also wrote about um, perceptions of Africa, that was quite influential. And we've got a clip here of him speaking to China Global Television Network. This was way back in 2015, specifically on this question about um, how stories about Africa are often portrayed on the front pages of Western newspapers. Let's listen to this. The Western perceptions of Africa are really about how power creates perception. So um, in 1885, um, the great powers of the West sat in one meeting and drew which country belongs to who, which place belongs to where, and made the map of the continent and created it as a unit, as an idea for the purpose of imperial plunder. The colonization of Africa happened using their excuse that Africans needed to be saved for them, for, from themselves by being made Christians and taking education and so on and so forth. And in the process of this, enormous amounts of our own resources and our own people died and were plundered. So that's fine. So a hundred years later, the relationship remains kind of the same. Um, and I, so I guess what it is is that we are now living in a world where the different poles of the world are challenging power. China is challenging power, Brazil is challenging power, or the simple easy assumptions that, you know, the hegemony of Western power, which would have the right to define you as they choose to see you. So, for example, it's now impossible to look at the frame of India in the way Western writing was seeing India 10 or 15 years ago, which is just a lot of random gurus and some ki- a kind of incoherence. Now, India itself is a power that can't be ignored, and so Western perceptions of it must shift. So the question really is going to be over the next 20 or 30 years how uh, Africa itself shifts as a power and is able to command its own... Uh, or people will have to respect its own views of itself in the world. You can hear there what drove him, and uh, in his actual writing, it's infused with a lot of humor as well. Obviously, in that China Global Television Network interview, he had a more, slightly more reflective 
uh, and straight tone, as it were. No pun on straight in this occasion. Um, but I also want to play you a different clip. Now, after his health difficulties, as Nick was saying, he suffered a stroke while he was in Germany. I don't think he was ever completely the same, but he continued to live as if it is important for you to recognize life is not a dress rehearsal and the show must go on, even as death had come knocking at his door the first time in Germany. And in this interview, uh, he talks a little bit about his love of uh, Joburg. I think you can also probably hear a little bit how his speech had been impaired, but his creativity and his mind still shines through. I'm an African who loves Africa, yes? And... Mm, I go to Nigeria often, I go everywhere in Africa, I'm invited, I go. In Europe, I don't go a lot. I will, they invite me, but I don't go a lot. I like the sound of Africans speaking their languages. Even around me, it feels, made me feel safe. From childhood, it made me feel safe. Rather than Europe where it is one language and you speak it, they speak German or whatever, it makes me feel paranoid. And they also feel, they also paranoid about complex, the complexity of Africans. That we have many languages that we speak on the street everywhere and loudly and that is cool with us. We don't have xenophobia. And I suspect South Africa has some xenophobia, but it, even that is not as much as they have it in Europe. Yes. Mava, thank you for picking that clip. There's something about the resilience of a person, even in the face of health difficulties, that is amazing. And you can hear there his mind at work, his reflection, his politics, uh, and his love of Joburg, notwithstanding xenophobia and Afrophobia in our country. And he stood out. I mean, he looked like he was from the rest of the continent if you had to see him. And no one knew him from his colorful hairdos to his physical presence, his regalia. Um, and despite that, he Deeply, deeply loved this country, South Africa, that was his home, uh, quite frankly, like many other countries around the continent. I'd also asked another excellent uh, African author in Sapiwa Moholo to also uh, do a little bit of a tribute and tell us what his reflections are. And I think we've got some sound of Sapiwa also just telling us what, what really uh, comes to mind when he thinks about this giant of a writer that is no more. And in fact, I heard the news uh, sadly yesterday morning first from Sapiwa. This is what he had to say. Uh, my name is Sapiwa Mahala and uh, like many um, literary enthusiasts, um, the passing of Pinyavanga Wainana uh, left me gutted. Um, I had known uh, Pinyavanga as a as a brother and a friend for about 13 years um, but I was exposed first exposed to his work back in 2004 when I attended the Kane Prize workshop alongside several Kenyan writers including Yvonne Adiamba Award, uh, Paselelo Kontai and Stanley Kazemba among others. Um, here I was also presented with a copy of Discovering Home, an anthology of short stories uh, titled after Pinyavanga's work um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I was also presented with several copies of uh, of Kwani, um, which Pinyavanga was was credited for founding. 
And um, from this point, I took particular interest in his work. And what struck me the most uh, was not just his immense talent, but his passion for Africa. Uh, discovering home itself is about uh, identity, is about discovering who we are and um, connects um, different uh, cultures and countries on the continent. And um, Pinyavanga was the embodiment of that, uh, connecting people. And, um, you know, I, my first uh, meeting with him in person was in 2006 uh, at the British Library. Um, he was there alongside uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And uh, from that point, we, we kept in touch uh, because I was interested in his work and um, he, he discovered my work as well. And um, later on, um, when I was working for the Department of Arts and Culture, um, he was invited to deliver the, the Africa Month lecture. And he's by far one of the best persons to, to speak authoritatively about Africa um, because he's uh, connected to so many countries. But also um, at the time when um, there was uh, an upsurge of xenophobic attacks, uh, in South Africa, Binyavanga was almost the lone voice who spoke positively about um, his time in South Africa. He, he, was, he loved this country. He, he loved the Eastern Cape. Um, he loved Tata in particular. He, we always reminisced about, about his time as, as a student in the Eastern Cape. And I, I think um, his greatest legacy um, uh, would be his... Um, iconic essay, How to Write About Africa. And I think it's a, it's the kind of essay that um, everyone who wants to be connected with the African continent one way or another um, should read. And I think um, the best tribute we can um, pay to him um, would be to read his works because um, he might have ceased to breathe, but his works will continue to live. And um, yeah, that's that's all for me. Thanks. The Literature Corner. 25 minutes before noon, and we're doing a tribute, The Life and Times of Binyavanga Wainaina, who passed away very sadly this week. Absolutely brilliant African author. And thank you so much uh, to my friends and fellow writers, Sepio Mahala, Zukiswa Warner, and Nick Mushlongo for their tributes thus far. I'm going to end this uh, session by actually doing as Sepio implores us to do, which is to read uh, from Binyavanga's uh, actual work. Now, his essay, if you haven't read it, it's absolutely hilarious how to write about Africa. Have you read it, Mava? It's actually really, really funny. Um, and it's lampooning the way in which the West writes about Africa. I'm just going to read a couple of the opening paragraphs of it. It goes as follows. Always use the word Africa or darkness or safari in your title. Subtitles may include the words Zanzibar, Maasai, Zulu, Zambezi, Congo, Nile, Big, Sky, Shadow, Drum, Sun or Bygone. Also useful are words such as gorillas, timeless, primordial, and tribal. Note that people means Africans who are not black, while the people means black Africans. Never have a picture of a well-adjusted African on the cover of your book or in it unless that African has won the Nobel Prize. An AK-47, prominent ribs, naked breasts, use these. If you must include an African, 
Make sure you get one in Maasai or Zulu or Dogon dress. In your text, treat Africa as if it were one country. It is hot and dusty with rolling grasslands and huge herds of animals and tall, thin people who are starving. Or it is hot and steamy with very short people who eat primates. Don't get bogged down with precise descriptions. Africa is big, 54 countries, 900 million people who are too busy starving and dying and warring and emigrating to read your book. The continent is full of deserts, jungles, highlands, savannas and many other things, but your reader doesn't care about all that. So keep your descriptions romantic and evocative and unparticular. Make sure you show how Africans have music and rhythm deep in their souls and eat things no other humans eat. Do not mention rice and beef and wheat. Monkey brain is an African's cuisine of choice, along with goat, snake, worms and grubs and all manner of gay meat. Make sure you show that you are able to eat such food without flinching and describe how you learn to enjoy it because you care. Taboo subjects? Ordinary domestic scenes, love between Africans, unless a death is involved. References to African writers or intellectuals. Mention of school-going children who are not suffering from yours or Ebola fever or female genital mutilation. Absolutely love it. The Literature Corner. And one of my favorite tweets about that piece was from Simon Allison, who is a brilliant writer on African politics for Mail and Guardian. And Simon said... Now, here you have someone who writes African politics and history that Binya's essay made him have to think very long and hard about his own work as a journalist reporting on the continent and the way in which he writes about Africa. Now, the next is from I am a homosexual mom. And there's a little bit of swearing in here. So just be mindful of that and expletive. And this one is uh, going to be read and it's going to be read by um, Mike uh, Maseko and it's a short excerpt and basically he came out as being queer and he imagined telling his late mom about this and just a couple of paragraphs that I'd ask Mike to read if you want the full entry google it and read it hey mum I was putting my head on her shoulder that last afternoon before she died, she was laying on her hospital bed, Kenyatta Intensive Care, Critical Care, there. Because this time I will not be away in South Africa, fucking things up in that chaotic way of mine. I will arrive on time and be there when she dies. My heart arrives on time. I am holding my dying mother's hand. I am lifting her hand. Her hand will be swollen with diabetes. Her organs are failing. Hey, mum, oh, my mind sighs, my heart. I am whispering in her ear. She is awake, listening, soft, calm, loving, with my head right inside her breath space. So, she is so big, my mother in this world, near the next world, each breath slow, but steady as it should be. Inhale. She can carry everything. I will whisper louder in my mind's breath. To hers, she will listen even if she doesn't hear, can she? Mom, I will say, Mom, I will say, it grooves so easy. 
a breath and noise out of my mouth, mixed up with her breath, and she exhales. My heart gasps sharp, and now my mind screams sharp, so so hurt, so so angry. I have never thrown my heart at you, mum. You have never asked me to. Only my mind says this, not my mouth, but surely the jerk of my breath and heart there next to hers has been registered. Is she letting me in? Nobody, nobody, ever in my life has ever heard this. Never, mum. I did not trust you, mum. And I pulled air hard and bowed it down into my navel. And let it out slow and firm, clean and without bumps out of my mouth, loud and clear over her shoulder into her ear. I am a homosexual, mum. Literature corner. And that's the title of that essay as well. I am a homosexual, mum. You can look it up. Absolutely amazing. Uh, published by Sean Jacobs for Africa as a Country. And then, of course, um, what propelled him onto the literary scene was um, Discovering Home, which won the Kane Prize for 2002. And I'll just read the opening description from it. There is a problem. Somebody has fallen asleep in the toilet. The upstairs bathroom is locked and Frank has disappeared with the keys. There's a small riot as drunken women with smudged lipstick and crooked wigs bang on the door. There's always that point at a party when people are too drunk to be having fun, when strange, smelly people are asleep on your bed, when the good booze runs out and there's only Sedgwick's brown sherry and a carton of sweet white wine, when you realize that all your flatmates have gone and all this is your responsibility. When the DJ is slumped over the stereo and some strange person is playing Brenda Farsi's latest hit over and over again. I've been studying here in Umtata, South Africa, for five years and have rarely breached the boundary of my clique. Fear, I suppose, and a feeling that I'm not quite ready to leave a place that has let me, let me be anything I want to be and provided not a single predator. That is what this party is all about. I am going home for a year. Okay. And that is the opening scene from Discovering Home, which won him the Kane Prize for 2002. Binyavanga, Wainaina, larger than life. Rest in peace. <laughs> 